Good morning. So I was going to say welcome to summer yesterday, but today I'll say welcome back to winter. And it is spring in a week. Praise the Lord. I think the joke I was going to say a little while ago, I, was, I, was remembered, I remembered it. I said, please be gracious to the folks that arrive here in the next 20 minutes. And, and I, was just, I was thinking earlier this morning, I think the, the lowest attended Sunday morning services is when we spring forward. That's when we have the lowest numbers, like 4th of July, can't even, can't even touch it, but uh, yeah. So we'll get, we'll get some more people in here in a little bit, and maybe they can go to the second service, with the, uh, which we have a second service. It's in Spanish, usually, uh, but you're always welcome to join that if you come late on Sunday morning. Okay. So I w- I've been wondering this week, if you were to pull maybe 10 people in this church and just kind of randomly pull them and ask them the question, what are the most important virtues? I'm just curious what the response would be. And if you were to go into the city of Prionville and pull maybe 100 people and, and ask the same question, what are the most important virtues for a person to have or practice what would they be? Maybe, maybe you go into the state of Oregon and, and pull 1,000 people with the same question, or the United States and pull 10,000 people with the same question. What kind of virtues would come up? What would people say are the most important moral or ethical qualities for a human person to have? As I was thinking about that this week, I did a Google search, and I, I found this, and this was written by uh, a man I'm going to totally butcher his name. He's a British philosopher, and I believe his name is Alain de Botton. Maybe. Something like that. Uh, It's called A Manifesto for Atheists, Ten Virtues for the Modern Age. So in a sense, it's it's virtues like Ten Commandments for Atheists. You have uh, resilience. It's hard to see. I can barely see it right here. Resilience, empathy, patience, sacrifice, politeness. Would you pick that as one of your top virtues, politeness? Maybe you should. Okay. Uh, Humor, self-awareness, forgiveness, hope, and confidence. And I just thought that was interesting for an atheist to come up with a list of virtues because I'm not sure where they ground them myself. But um, I think if you were to poll people and ask them, what are the most important things? Like, what are the most important just ethical or moral laws and how to live in this world? People would probably say something like, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Do you agree with that? Or do as you would be done by, maybe. Or treat people the same way that you want to be treated. And for, for most people, and for the most part, I believe as you, as you kind of talk to people and, and have them talk about what does it mean to be a moral good person, to do good and to do right, they would come up with some version of the golden rule, which is the very verse we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 7. As we continue our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gets to, to verse 12 here in, in chapter 7, and he says this very simply, Therefore, everything that you wish that people would do to you, so also you should do to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And this verse is so important that we're actually just focusing on one verse today, all by itself this morning. But even though we're focusing on it by itself, this isn't a verse that you can just pull out of the scripture 
pull it out of its context in the Sermon on the Mount and paste it on the wall and be good, which is kind of something we want to do. You could probably find a website that has a nice picture of an eagle soaring and this verse on it, right, that you can, you can paste in your office hallway and hope that everybody gets along. This isn't something you can just take out of context. Yet in a few words, Jesus seems to be summing up the entire Sermon on the Mount. Even, I would argue, I'm going to argue in just a minute, that he sums up the entire Bible. And the very point that he makes with the final words of this verse are this, that this is the law and the prophets. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophets. So the first thing to observe then is that this isn't the first time that Jesus has used that phrase, the law and the prophets, in the Sermon on the Mount. So look back, if you will, and I trust that you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 7, and you're following along with me. If, you, if you're not, there's pew Bibles there that you can follow along with. But if you go back a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, very close to the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins at the beginning of chapter 5. In verses 17 and 18, here's what Jesus says. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the pro- or the prophets. Don't, don't think that I've come to do away with the law and the prophets or to cross them out and start over. Not come to abolish them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And these two verses here in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 7, so Matthew 5, 17, and then Matthew 7, 12, they act as markers for us. If we, if we were to kind of back away from the sermon as a whole and see these two things, Jesus talks about law and the prophets here. He talks about law and the prophets here. He's creating a bookend, if you will, And basically saying that everything in between 5.17 and 7.12, this is my interpretation for you of the law and the prophets. This is my summary of what this means. And so 5.17 to 7.12 is this coherent whole. And everything that comes before chapter 5 verse 17 is an introduction. And everything that comes after 7.12 is a conclusion. So this phrase, the law and the prophets, refers to two of the three main sections of the Hebrew scriptures. When the Hebrew scriptures were put together, they were, they were broken into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so Jesus uses the phrase, the law and the prophets, as kind of a shorthand to refer to what we now call the Old Testament, the entire thing. So to understand then that this, this middle section of the sermon, from 5.17 to 7.12, which is the bulk of the sermon is held together by this idea of the law and the prophets. This idea that this is a summary of the Old Testament. Understanding that is crucial because we see that the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus' way of summarizing and explaining the entire Old Testament. So check out another time. This is what Alicia just read to us where Jesus refers to the law and the prophets in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, where he says, You shall love the Lord your God. And it was people coming to him, asking him a question, trying to trap him, trying to trick him. They say, what is the greatest commandment? So out of all the 600 some odd commandments in the Old Testament, pick one, Jesus. What's the best one? 
And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 18. So he picks two, picks two verses from the law. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, some of your, probably most Bibles, other than the ESV in English, actually use the word hang. Does your, does your Bible use the word hang instead of the word depend? Just one, really? Is everybody else in the ESV or using mine? <laughs> this is the ESV, okay. So it either says depend or to hang. So on these two commandments, depend or hang all the law and the, and the prophets here. So, so Jesus, when he gives the greatest commandments, he, he's not just randomly quoting these two verses from the Old Testament. He's summarizing the entire Old Testament by referencing these two well-known verses. And we can see how he does this when we actually look at that word that I have there in bold, the word depend, which which is likely translated, if you don't have the ESV, as to hang. That's what it literally means, is to hang, to hang on something, like to hang on a cross. That is the same word there. And let me, let me just give you an illustration to try to give you a picture of what this word means. So this last summer, uh, my wife wanted to paint our front door. So I, I took it down off the frame, you know, put it up on sawhorses, and she painted the front door. And then I rehung it, but I didn't do it right. You ever do that where you don't quite tighten all the screws down? Or maybe they come loose over time? And so for several months, the front door was sticking. It was just hard to open, hard to close. It would, it would hit the jam and, and, sit the, and, and stop there or slow down. And, and it would, for the little girls especially, they'd always have to shove on. If you lifted it just a little bit, you were fine. This is one of those things in your home where if you know the trick, everything's going to be fine. Okay. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of how you live with things for a while. And uh, while we had COVID and we were quarantined a few weeks ago, it was that week where it was like 65 all week outside. So we're sitting out in the front yard and going in and out of the front door. And I'm like, this is annoying. I should do something about this. So I walk out, I get my screw gun, uh, open the door up, tighten two screws. It took me maybe three, maybe three and a half seconds to do it. But after that time... Um, after just a few seconds of attention, the change was unbelievable. Here's how I say it, man. That door is like butter. I mean, it just is smooth now. It just opens and closes. It doesn't even squeak when you, you know. And it's just like butter. And it took me like three seconds. And, and the point is that when a hinge is off, when a hinge isn't properly hung or a door isn't properly hung on the hinges, the door just won't work right. Hinges are the mechanism on which a door hangs. Hinges are an integral part of the door. If you lose one hinge, the door won't open or close properly. You ever remove a heavy door by yourself? And you remove one hinge, and then all of a sudden you're trying to hold this door and unscrew the other. Some of you guys are chuckling. You know exactly what I mean. You lose one hinge, the door won't open or close properly. You lose both hinges, and the door is basically completely unusable. And this is the sense of the word that's translated depend or hang there in Matthew 22, verse 40. Jesus is saying that the twin commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor 
are the two crucial hinges on which the great door of God's kingdom hangs. Could this be the same door that Jesus promised in, in, the few, in verses 7 and 8, just above this? Could this be the same door that Jesus promised would be opened if we knocked on it? Could this be the same gate that Jesus refers to in verses 13 and 14, this narrow gate that leads to life but is difficult to find? Could Jesus be talking about these same things here when he says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, love God and love others? In other words, the kingdom of God, I think what Jesus is saying as he lays it out and describes it in this sermon, is his own summary of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament. The kingdom of God simply cannot be entered into. You cannot exist in the kingdom of God. You cannot call God's kingdom your home without these two commandments. God's word and God's world simply would not make any sense without them. So Jesus isn't exaggerating when he says that loving others by treating them with the same dignity, the same honor, the same care, the same concern with which we treat ourselves actually is the law and the prophets. You are living God's word if you love others. And and we can spend a lot of time with God's word. We can spend a lot of time studying and and trying to understand and decipher the Bible, trying to make heads or tails of these ancient texts. We can get off on a lot of different tangents as we read and study, a lot of different belief systems that may or may not have anything to do with what the Bible actually says. But Jesus has made it super simple for us. He said, if you want to understand the Bible, then you must understand love. And if you don't understand love for others, then you don't understand the Bible. If you don't understand love, then you'll never see eye to eye with Jesus. If you don't understand and live love, then you'll never enter the kingdom of God. This whole book is centered around love. Can I get an amen, Gabe Hendricks? Okay. This is Gabe Hendricks' sermon that I'm preaching, by the way, this morning. It's all about love. And it's just as simple as that. And if you need a primer on it, there's actually one in the book, 1 John. Go and read 1 John. It'll take you about half an hour this afternoon to read. Don't read it during the sermon. So this love to which Jesus calls us is, of course, based in the very character of of this good and generous Father that Jesus is telling us about, the Father who knows everything that we need before we ask Him, the Father who gives good things to those who ask Him. And the Law and the Prophets are nothing more than the perfect reflection of God's heart towards us, God's desire for how our our hearts should be directed towards others. So how exactly then does God want us to love him? How does he want us to love others? So let's return then to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Therefore, everything that you wish that people would do to you, so also you should do to them. As I mentioned earlier, this, this verse has come to be known famously as the golden rule. And I want to 
just give you four kind of takeaways from this verse, from this golden rule of Jesus, four takeaways for today. And the first is this, that the golden rule can be summarized as loving God by loving others. Let me, let me just explain this point real quickly. I would argue that if you, if you combine the great commandment of Matthew 22, which we read a moment ago, and, and this golden rule of Matthew 7, 12, that we find that one thing Jesus is saying is that one of the, if not the primary way we love God is by loving others. Amen? All right. That's number one. Golden rule is loving God by loving others. The second one is that the golden rule is actually a popular ethic, and I referred to this at the very beginning. This simple sentence is perhaps really the most robust and concise summary of ethics in the history of the world. It's it's really difficult to argue with, and nearly any sane person will agree with it as a basic ethical and moral rule, a, a way to live as a good person, as a decent person in this world. If I treat others the way I want to be treated, then things will go well. And I, I noted earlier that, well, I didn't note this earlier, I meant to, it was in my, it fell out of my notes somewhere, that I, I think one thing, one ethic that the world exalts is tolerance. And, and what the world does, I think, is creates an ethic which takes Jesus' golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you, and rewords it. And we're, by the way, we as humans, all of us, are prone to do this with Jesus' words. Take them and reword them in a way that works better for us. And we do this, and, and we, we come around to more of a self-centered demand for tolerance. That sounds something like this. I want you to treat me as you would treat yourself. Okay, start there. And in exchange for that, if you do that, I will treat you as I want to be, as I want to be treated. But you, you start, right? <laughs> okay. And the way I want to be treated is to be left alone to do whatever I want. And so if you leave me alone to do whatever I want, then I'll leave you alone to do whatever you want. And if we affirm each other in that every once in a while, that'll help as well. Do we have a deal? Can you guys, you guys good with that? Okay, that is what I would call the golden rule of tolerance. And it can be summed up in these four words. Leave each other alone. Or, to word it differently, maybe a little bit more broadly, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. Have you heard that before? Okay, do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anyone. Here's the point. The golden rule is a popular ethic, but it gets twisted by fallen human hearts, yours and mine included. Okay, this isn't just them out there. This isn't the world that does this. We do this as well. So it's a popular ethic that gets twisted. And to look a little bit further into it, my third point is that the golden rule is a positive command. And I say positive command in contrast to a negative command. So when you think of the the Ten Commandments, we could consider those as very negative commands in the sense that you shall not do this, you shall not do this, you shall not do this. You'll notice that the modern ethic, do, do whatever you want, just don't hurt anybody, is fundamentally negative in regards to our relationship. Now, there were actually other rabbis during Jesus' time, and one of them, one of the most famous rabbis, 
was a man by the name of Hillel. And when, when he was asked the same question that Jesus was asked about what's the greatest commandment, he said very, something very similar to what Jesus said, only he said it in a negative way. He said, do not do to others what is hateful to you. Okay, so refrain from doing to others what is hateful to you, which is another way of saying, don't hurt anybody. Okay, you see how, how this is negative instead of positive. It's, it's simply a command to refrain from a certain type of behavior, like don't hurt other people. Don't do what's hateful to, to, to yourself. So to refrain from a certain type of behavior rather than to engage in a certain time, type of behavior. This is a crucial distinction because Jesus' words in this verse are wholly positive. Look again at Matthew 7, 12. Everything or um, whatever you wish, whatsoever you wish, everything, that's, that's universal, it's all-inclusive, it, it talks about everything we want. So think about every way that you want other people to treat you. Jesus is saying, take all of that, not just bits and pieces of it, but all of that, everything that you wish that people would do to you, doing something to others is a positive action, so also you should do to them, another positive action. So there's a universalness to it, and there's an activeness to it. You have to actually do something. You have to take initiative for the good of another person. So Jesus' command here is actually calling us to move towards relationship, to move towards other people. There's an ownership, a, a responsibility for the good of the other person that we are taking on our shoulders that their well-being and their flourishing and their success would actually be our own concern. In his most famous sermon that was titled The Weight of Glory, it was preached in June of 1941, C.S. Lewis addressed this very thing. Here's how he opens the sermon with this observation. It's here up on the screen. It says, if you ask 20 good men today, kind of like I was doing at the beginning, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness. Now, this was 81 years ago, so it might be a little bit different today. You might find tolerance or diversity or politeness or something in there. But if you had asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he would have replied love. You see what has happened. A negative term has been substituted for a positive and this is of more than philological importance. In other words, it's not just the words that matter. There's something deep there. The negative idea of unselfishness carries with it the suggestion not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves. As if our abstinence or our not doing something, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think that this is the curing virtue of love. And I love Lewis's phrase of securing good things for others. Have you ever thought about that as, as how you function in the world? I'm going to go about today and secure good things for others. I love that that just communicates something very important about the golden rule that I think Jesus is getting at, and it's this, that he's calling us to take ownership for our neighbors, 
to take ownership for the good of other people. The golden rule as Jesus intended it to be lived is not a demand that we just be left alone. Rather, it's a refusal to ignore other people for the sake of my own freedom or whatever. It's, not, it's a refusal to ignore other people, which includes actively laying down my own rights for the sake of others, which Paul puts beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, where he says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we begin to follow him and he puts his spirit into us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ, that he's given us his very mind. And as he works his mind in us, it's not that we would just think right thoughts, but it's that we would live in the way that Jesus would live, that we would begin to treat other people the way that Jesus would treat them. Golden rule is a positive command, taking on ownership for the good of others. And then finally, the golden rule is really a reflection of the Father's love. In this rule, Jesus calls us, calls for a human expression of divine love, that we would live out as children, that we would bear the family resemblance, that we would actually act like our daddy and look like him. And it's human nature, I think, that we want others to treat us well. Would you agree? You want other people to treat you well? And, and I would take it even a step further. I think most of us want others to treat us the way that God treats us. So with kindness, with grace, we want to be treated with forgiveness despite our faults and sins. We don't want people to hold grudges against us. We, we want to be welcomed in by people and not left as outsiders. But do we want to treat others in the same way that God treats us? Don't you think that's what Jesus is saying here? In verses 11 and 12 when he says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our Father is good and he's gracious. And then Jesus uses this crazy word, Therefore, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. You love that God showers his grace and his generosity on you. You love that he welcomes you hospitably into his family. You love that he treats you as a child. Then turn around and treat others in the same way. Treat them as you want God to treat you. And if you expect that God would give you whatever you ask for, even better than what you ask for, then, you would, then why would you turn around and treat anyone any differently? Our asking and our seeking and our knocking that Jesus talks about in verses 7 and 8 shouldn't 
only derive benefit for us, they should also transform us into the kind of people who love like our Father loves. So if you were to treat others the way God treats you, how would that change your relationships? How would it change the way that you interact with people in your home, in your family, or in your neighborhood, or in the church, or at your workplace, or at your school, or in the community? Would you be more patient with others in their faults? All those things that drive you nuts about people. Would you let them slide more easily? Would you forgive more quickly? Would you be more welcoming and more hospitable? Would you be more eager to introduce others to Jesus? Would you be more willing to die for someone else like Jesus himself has died for us? You see, in his kind and gracious and good fatherly nature, God doesn't say to us, if you do a bunch of good things, then I will do good things for you. What he does say is, I have done every good thing for you. Now you go and do likewise. Perhaps the Apostle Paul sums it up best in Romans chapter 13 when he says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What would the world look like, brothers and sisters, if we sought to fulfill God's law in an active, all-encompassing, generous love in every thought, every word, and every decision? And my challenge for all of us today is that we would walk out those doors and go find out what that would look like. Would you pray with me? Father, that last challenge requires grace and it requires strength, it requires you being in our midst and in us through your Holy Spirit. God, we have hearts that, that want to turn your golden rule into something that serves us. And so I pray that you continue to do that work of spirit shaping and spirit changing and spirit molding and spirit chiseling on our hearts to soften them, to love others, to take risks, to be generous, to go the extra mile, to lay down our lives for our neighbors, our friends, our families, even as you call us, Jesus, for our enemies. God, we desperately need your strength to be able to do this, to live and love in this kind of way, just as you have done for us. So move in us and show us what it looks like for us to love this world as you have. In your name we pray, amen.